Hello and welcome to another edition of A Friendly Chat. Uh, Naomi is still off doing better things away from uh, Bristow's at the moment, so I am very kindly joined today by my colleague Matt Hunt, who didn't run fast enough when I looked around the department. Do you want to introduce yourself, Matt? Hi, Luke. Um, thanks for having me. Yes, didn't quite run fast enough. Have to get out, practice the Strava uh, times and get a little bit further away for next time. Um, so hi, I'm Matt. I'm a senior associate in the competition team here at Bristow's. I've spent quite a bit of time uh, over my career to date on Frand Matters, starting as a trainee when I got sucked into the original Unwired Planet litigation. It was like quite a long time ago um, now, back in the day. Um, and then have been involved in various things in the Fran space ever since, from all of those jurisdiction challenges in Conversant and ZTE and various other Fran negotiations over the years. And um, yeah, it's an interesting one because it feels like for a lot, I say over the years, for a lot of those years, there wasn't a lot happening in the Fran space in terms of actual judgments you could get stuck into. And now here we are with them coming all over the place. Exactly. And we've talked about IDC and Lenovo on a previous podcast, but this time we're doing Optus and Apple. Mr. Justice Marcus Smith has blessed us with a second present very quickly afterwards. Uh, And we thought we would call this podcast the Bluffer's Guide to Optus and Apple, what you need to know to talk for five minutes sensibly on the judgment, he says. Obviously, we'll see if you agree with that at the end of the podcast. Um, So starting at at the end, almost. So the particularly interesting thing about Optus and Apple is I I can't quite remember what the demands were Optus made when it issued the claim form, except that it included the word billion. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, can you remind us where he actually came out? Was it two billion? Uh, I think it's about 50 million, wasn't it? uh... I think you might be right. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) 56.43. So yeah, it looks like a big win for Apple on paper. Absolutely. Um, The question is, once we delve into it, is it really a big win for Apple, I suppose? But yes, uh, certainly compared to what they were seeking. Um, In terms of a breakdown as well, I think that's some for the future and some for the past as well. Yeah, that was one of the points I thought was interesting. And I mean, to some extent, I'm aware that at the end of the judgment, the judge says that the parties will have to go back to him, have the matter returned so that he can consider the precise terms of the Frand license. And this feels like one of those important points that has kind of got lost in that kind of muddle at the end of the judgment and we'll sort it out later. Because there seems to be something where the judge says the license term should be until the end of the patents, that the patents expire. But then he's also only requiring Apple to pay for a term of five years. For that forward-looking part. Yes, um, and indeed uh, it looks like he's kind of approximated, doesn't it, by saying you need to pay till the end of the patents. That's obviously a variable term, but let's call it five years, but it's not immediately clear. I think this is what you were saying. It's not immediately clear if things are quite that simple and it's going to come out of the wash of the consequentials hearing, which was four days last week. It was four days, was it? Four days, yes. Wow. That's uh, longer than most patent trials yeah. to argue about the consequentials following a judgment. Yeah, I suppose with points like that thrown in, it's not that surprising because, I mean, who knows when all those 4G patents are expiring and there are also some random references to 5G and the judge's keen desire to avoid the parties coming back to argue about 5G or have another dispute over that. But they didn't really deal with 5G in the judgment and It's the kind of thing that you would have thought would have made a significant impact on the rates and various other matters if you were suddenly throwing that into the mix as well. 
Exactly, which leads to the sort of strong suggestion, doesn't it, that a lot of the patents are 4G patents that are being read onto 5G. But I mean, obviously, that's a bit of, uh, at least from my memory of the magnum opus of a judgment, that might be a supposition. It might be couched somewhere on page 167 or something, but who knows. Um, but in terms of what he did as well, so, I mean, we're talking a pretty uh, a pretty novel situation, aren't we? Because he, the English court loves a comparable and, and obviously, we all know the best comparable is one to the portfolio you're trying to value. Um, but uh, perhaps you'd like to remind me what he actually did with Optus's comparables. <laughs> Basically ignored them, I think. Yeah, well, that's, you threw me a bit by saying the English court loves a good comparable and the best one is a value <laughs> comparable for the license to the portfolio, because I feel like that was the case. <laughs> and maybe now it is no longer the case, given that in this case, Marcus Smith just seems to have ignored the Optus licenses completely. I think on the basis that he thought they were all with such small parties that it was easy for Optus to get higher rates and therefore they weren't useful comparables. And so instead, he's just looked at some of the Apple licenses as his basis for the entire rate. Exactly. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because I agree, it does sort of look like on the one hand, he's turned the approach the court had been taking slightly on its head. On the other hand, you could say it's consistent because Mr. Justice Miller um, in IDC and Lenovo also ignored the licenses with the bit players. It's probably not quite the right word, but the smaller players who were paying sort of close to or at the headline rate and said, well, that's not really a proper comparable license. Let's look at all the comparables with the Samsons and Zetees of this world and, Optus, you know, all the key important manufacturers, Xiaomi, Huawei, Apple, etc., and see what they were paying. Um, it's just that here, you didn't have any of those. Do you say that's uh, fair? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, good. Well, it's always good <laughs> when people agree. Um, so in terms of what he actually did, so I don't know if your understanding is different to mine, but I sort of understand he was doing a quasi top-down thing, but basing it on effectively Apple's licenses. So he was trying to work out what the universe is and then looking at all of Apple's licenses and valuing the universe or 1% of the universe based on that license, knowing how much of the universe that license related to. And that gave him a huge variety of figures for what a share of the universe was worth and thus the universe. And then he seems to do some complicated averaging maths that's redacted and then out pops the magic number is that fair <laughs> yeah so i think that is a fair summary it is really hard in cases like this where so many of the calculations are redacted to unpack what the judge has actually done and precisely how that he has worked through the calculations i think it is also interesting that like in unwired planet the judge has kind of just He's had the evidence from a series of experts for one side and a series of experts for the other side. And whilst we all know the experts have their duty to the court and are independent, they, you do often end up as the judge in a position where you have these two very conflicting approaches taken by the experts hmm. in their evidence. And so it seems to be a case where the judge has just basically ignored all of that evidence and charted their own course through the middle. Um, I don't know if you think that's a fair uh, yes, I, I think that's fair. I think uh, there might even be a quote somewhere from Mr. Justice Marcus Smith in the judgment saying he wasn't going to uh, follow either expert's <laughs> approach and just do his own thing and make his best hash of it, which, uh, you know, as you pointed out, is kind of a judicial thing to do, isn't it? Um, 
I suppose some key figures which are quite useful to know, albeit technically from an English law point of view, not binding on a future judge, um, was he thought the total SEP universe included about 26,600 patent families. He reduced that to 22,000 to take into account, in inverted commas, the fact that the stack size increased over time. And then obviously he looked at Optus's share of that. So Optus was held to have 0.61% of the universe. Uh, and then for reasons that are entirely redacted in the judgment, so therefore very use, uh, very useful for us, uh, Apple only had to pay for 0.38% of it. But who knows? I suspect they probably already had a license to some part of the portfolio they had purchased from someone else, but who knows? Um, so basically the judge decided the Optus portfolio was worth about $8.235 million a year uh, and, well, $5 million a year to, to Apple for their lower share. Um, so in terms of using the Apple licenses, because um, obviously he held that the Optus comparables were, I think I'm right in saying he used the term worse than useless. I wouldn't like to misquote Mr. Justice Marcus Smith, but I, I think that is a quote, um, given the fact they were with very small parties. Um, but he used the Apple comparables, he worked out the price, and I think he was pretty clear, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, that he was pricing pricing this license for Apple, right? Do do you agree that's clear, rather than as a sort of benchmark? Yeah, I think there is a part in the judgment where he talks about how what he is seeking to value is the value to Apple of having access to the portfolio, as in, so like, the set of the patents in that stack figure that you mentioned that are owned by Optus, the sort of the SEP holder in question here. And that is a different approach that was taken in Unwired Planet and I think also in um, Interdigital and Lenovo where they're sort of focused on more at coming out with a benchmark frand rate that applies for that portfolio. It's difficult to know just on the basis of these cases how much of a difference that makes in practice to the figure you end up at if you're taking a similar approach in the calculations aside from the point you've already mentioned about the focus on the Apple comparables instead of um, the Optus ones. It is a difference in approach that seems potentially quite an important one. Yeah, exactly. Because you could see an argument that if you're using a party's own comparables to value the stack, that's for that party. You you can similarly see an argument that you're doing a sort of quasi top-down type thing based on the only data you have that you think is reasonable, which is those particular set of licenses, because you're top-down, ultimately, you're just trying to value the stack, aren't you? And Yeah, and I mean, say hypothetically, Apple had been incredibly successful in obtaining very low-value licenses compared to every other player on the market. But then if every time it's in court, it's ending up with a rate that applies for it only as opposed to a more general one for that portfolio where Apple's own licenses would then be assessed with the licenses that everyone else in the market was able to achieve. You think that would end up going in a slightly dangerous direction that just favours the big players who have the most bargaining power? Yes, indeed. Uh, But then interesting how that fits with the court's view that it's really the big players who can negotiate hard, who are the ones who seem to be used as comparables. But then that said, um, as Mr. Justice Mellor said in IDC and Lenovo, I think they referred to Apple as being a bit of a special case, able to command its own prices for things. So it's just going to be very interesting to see what the Court of Appeal does with these two judgments. I can uh, vaguely see it hearing a joint appeal, albeit it might be the longest appeal in history, but um, just to try and solve some of these issues generally. But that is obviously very much up to Lord Justices Arnold and Burse, I would say.
yes, it would seem yes. likely that they would be on any appeal court constituted to hear this. Care to put your, your money on whether they're going to consolidate them? I don't know. I mean, I was going to ask you to guess at which of the, I guess, many potential issues that could be appealed do you think are most likely to make the final grounds? Oh, whether or not. Oh, goodness, that is phasing quite a lot, isn't it? Because, it, But it's one of the really difficult things about these cases, because so much of them are fact dependent. And, you know, it's hard. You can't second guess the work that the judge has done on that. I mean, there will have been hundreds, if not thousands of pages of submissions and evidence that the judge has had to consider in order to reach this judgment. And, you know, a lot of the points that we're saying are, you know, hard to see what the basis for that is, or it seems to have been given relatively short shrift. I mean, that may well not be the case. It was a however many weeks long trial, like everything may well have been considered in detail at the trial. And then you're only getting a snapshot in the judgment, the sort of the final conclusions and kind of unpacking what the actual legal principles are that you could appeal on instead of just factual points where it would be virtually impossible to do that uh, is a very tricky balance. Yes. Well, hopefully we'll have some uh, grounds of appeal in due course to shortcut (laughs) our our guesswork. But I mean, it is an interesting case. As you said, it turns on its fact. And ultimately, the court is here. English court's view of these things is if people can't reach agreement, it will give you an answer. And one party or another party may not like the answer. But that's the point, isn't it? That uh, ultimately, it just is an answer, at least. Um, In terms of a few more interesting little points for the bluffers guide, um, I'm fairly certain this judgment's pretty consistent with what Mr Justice Mellor said on per unit rates, i.e. again the court has sort of shied away from ad valorem um, with a few comments to that regard in the judgment. Uh, again, past infringements need to be fully paid for and interest has been made, declared to be payable on them. But um, the slightly interesting point of deviation in that regard is uh, Mr Justice Mellor completely ignored limitation periods and went back a long way, whereas I don't think the same can be said here, can it? No, I think in this one, I think the judge said when Optus first asserted itself, or language to that effect, Indeed. which was, what, 2017, I feel, something like that was the year he said, whereas mm. if you were going, say, six years back or the time of first infringement, or the first, not first infringement, say, but the, the time the, uh, the technology was first used, which I think was the position adopted in, in yeah. digital. That 2011. Be, yeah, that's a big difference. That is a big difference, especially when you've got interest on it yeah. as well. Even if you're only going at the Optus figure in this judgment of, say, roughly five million a year, going back another seven years and adding interest, it could turn out to be a pretty hefty sum. Yeah, and that's almost, uh, going back to your point about appeals and legal principles, whether or not you <laughs> that's got to be one that's ripe for right for uh, consideration and indeed application to to both cases doesn't it yeah where you'd hope they'd take a consistent view in the appeal court although presumably that would be lenovo appealing in interdigital rather than apple appealing here yes that's true <laughs> so slightly curious scenario isn't it um but just to round off the uh, the complete bluffing guide uh it covers all the products so it'll cover the apple car which i gather was heavily theorized which i don't actually think exists or indeed apple is working on but people like to seize on that i don't know would you buy an apple car matt i probably wouldn't but didn't they also theorize it was going to cost a hundred thousand dollars or something like that which is I miss that. Yeah, considerably more than I could afford to spend on a car. <laughs> yes, I must admit, if I'd known how much it costed, I'm not sure I would have asked if anyone I know would have afforded to buy one. I mean, I may have just made that number up, but I feel like I saw something. But if it was an Apple car, it would cost $100,000, yeah. that is true. 
Um, it runs to the expiry of all the patents in the portfolio, as we mentioned earlier, but that's sort of got this strange thing where that's been had a stand in of saying, well, let's charge you for five years. And that's that. Um, and then two other points worth noticing, noting one not worth talking about. Um, Apple has a smaller saleable patent purchasing unit approach that it was advocating for, which Mr. Justice Marcus Smith referred to as indefensible. Uh, so that seems fairly strong. Um, but then the other point that might be worth touching on is um, there was considerable use of third-party data, so inography on declared essential patents and PA consulting on numbers of quotes-unquote truly essential patents. So that included a bit of an extra qualitative analysis. Um, and he was quite straightforward on what he thought of third-party studies, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, clear preference in favour of the declared essential approach numbers rather than the truly essential approach numbers. And I guess that is consistent with the earlier part of the judgment where he was talking about assessing the quality of the portfolio and how whilst you should factor in validity and essentiality, you essentially can't do it for portfolios of any substance because the numbers of patents involved just get too large too quickly. Exactly. Yeah. And he's clearly sceptical, isn't he, of anything that involves any subjectivity. So the qualitative assessment from PA Consulting, which he commended as being quite ambitious, was obviously more unreliable because it was an element of subjectivity. And then he has this thing, doesn't he, where he's like, the more I have to unpack a license, the less useful it is. Yeah, I mean, I, you can see his thinking there. It just... I do feel like if you're saying that even that sort of study, which has involved lots of people spending a lot of time analysing these patterns, isn't worth considering, then are you not just accepting that even the patterns that people could spend a few minutes looking at and realise are pretty much worthless are all factored in in the same way as ones that are potentially far more important? The whole the keystone pattern point back from On My Planet, which hasn't had much attention since. Mm. And, and I suppose the tension with the fact that if the court's trying to replicate the negotiation in the wild, isn't it? And in the wild, dramatic term for telecoms uh, <laughs> negotiations, but in the wild, uh, you know, the various companies do use these reports to yeah. inform themselves. Yeah, and also, you know, the, the classic proud lists and the exchange of claim charts. And mm. what, what's the point in companies doing all of that if you're going to then go to court and the judge is going to completely ignore that and take a completely different approach? Yeah. And and indeed, sort of circling back just to complete the thought on subjectivity, you know, at the end of the day, what license doesn't need any unpacking? Yeah. <laughs> if you're using it as a comparable. Um, I can't think of one, to be honest. Uh, but there we are. Um, just to round it off, because I hate to approaching the 20 minute mark, um, he took a view that hold up and hold out were essentially irrelevant and basically throughout the abuse of dominant allegations. I don't know if there's anything you want to add from a competitional perspective, given you are a competition lawyer. Uh, I mean, on the abuse of dominant stuff, I think we'd kind of seen the approach Mr. Justice Burst took in On Wired Planet, and this was largely rehashing similar kinds of arguments with a bit less of a focus on the Huawei ZTE court of justice um, judgment, but I'm not surprised that it didn't really go anywhere. There was a good quote from um, Mr. Justice Smith in there somewhere about it feeling like a cause of action looking for a harm or something like that, rather than <laughs> damage looking for a cause of action. And I mean, Apple were suggesting, I think, that the losses they had suffered as a result of this potential abuse of dominance um, were the costs of doing the trial. And, you know, that's just, it's not going to be a convincing argument to raise issues like that in front of the judge. So I'm not, I'm not surprised that they didn't get much traction with those arguments. 
I do think there is still a role for competition issues in France generally. Uh, I mean, back in the Unwired Planet days, we ended up going to the Court of Appeal on some Article 101 arguments about the way Ericsson had divided up its portfolio. And I think, depending on the facts, there's still potential for that sort of issue to come back, I think, in these Fran cases in the future, just as there are many. I mean, basically every Fran case you look at has its own facts and its own novel issues that everyone gets very excited about and that will keep the lawyers and the judges busy for many years to come, I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, I don't think there's that much to say about the competition issues in this case, particularly. No, that's the, just for my edification, that's the age old privateering argument, yes. isn't it? Because yes. we all like an imperial British metaphor, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay. Uh, excellent. Well, thanks very much, Matt, for joining. I suppose, you know, every Fran case turns on its fact, but we have had quite a lot from the court recently about how these cases can now, having gone through the ringer a few times, be a lot more streamlined and dealt with more efficiently. So it would be good from a legal point of view to see that happen. But um, otherwise, yes, thanks for tra- uh, stepping into Naomi's shoes in her absence. I hope it hasn't been too traumatic. No, no, it's been good. Although obviously, I'm sure can't compare to Naomi herself in terms of quality of any content and analysis provided. But and um, I hope she's in, enjoying her mat leave and we'll, we'll see her back soon. Absolutely. Many thanks. See you next time. Bye.